0: Hello, you're listening to Streaming Audio. In this week's episode, I sat down with Nicoletta Verbeck to talk about performance and tuning, monitoring, how Kafka works under the hood to work efficiently, all those things that either you know before you deploy or you're forced to learn really quickly after you've deployed. And frankly, we couldn't have got a better guest for this. Nicoletta is absolutely amazing. She's a goldmine of information, and I just got to spend this episode hitting her with an axe and collecting valuable nuggets. That's that's probably not the best metaphor I could have gone with, but you get my point, right? This is one episode where I can guarantee you you're going to learn something. And you're going to learn something you didn't know, and you're going to learn something you didn't know you needed to know. So let's just skip my usual introduction and dive straight in. Streaming audio is brought to you by Confluent Developer, and I will tell you all about that at the end. Grab your notebooks, folks, because here we go. My guest today is Nicoletta Verbeck, who is a principal solutions architect at Confluent. Nicoletta, welcome to the show. Hey, nice to be here. Good to have you. My first question is, what's a principal solutions architect? What do you
1: actually do? (laughs) Yeah, so... Our professional service team kind of handles any troubleshooting, any problem solving, any architecture design, helping you devise a solution to use cases you have. And so that's kind of what I do all day is kind of help customers realize their use of Kafka and event streaming.
0: Is that mostly like troubleshooting or figuring out for how they're going to tackle new projects? Is it mixed?
1: A little of both, actually. I mean, we spent a lot of time problem solving issues they're currently having. Maybe they've grown bigger and now they're trying to figure out how to scale what they've already built, or they've, you know, this is their first time with Kafka and they want to do it right out of the box, and so we'll help them all along the way.
0: Okay, you, you must have you must have some more stories. <laughs> uh, quite a few. <laughs> Okay, well, we're going to get into those, but uh, so we we got in touch and said, "Do you have any suggestions for for how to run Kafka properly? Right and gotchas, and wow, you've <laughs> you have suggestions. You've sent us a laundry list. So we're going to go through this, and um, I know I'm going to learn a lot. So I'm sure everyone else will. Let me pick one at random. Let's talk about produ- let's start with producers, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things you said is it's a problem to use multiple producers in a single service, which took me by surprise.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this, this tends to be like a lot of people migrating to Kafka from things like RabbitMQ or a lot of your traditional message queue systems where they kind of push a model of just create new clients for every single topic that you want to write to or each queue you want to write to or such, right? And well, in Kafka, our Kafka producer is a thread-safe producer, and you know, especially in the Java realm, and it's actually able to talk to many topics with one instance. Right? We you know we treat the topic as metadata, we treat the partitions, as the actual you know shard of the of the data set, um, and we do a lot of interesting things behind the scenes to improve that throughput and. The biggest thing of that is this notion of batching. And we'll actually batch multiple records together um, as they target to a particular topic and partition. But we're also able to batch those batches up together as they target to a particular broker in the cluster. So if we're able to share topics, even if you know it's a single topic or your multiple topics, um, we can put them together get a little bit better throughput because now we're we're bundling every partition that was on that node together, targeting that particular broker, sending it across, and we're reducing our broker workload. Because um, a typical thing most people think about is, you know, requests per second. Well, the broker doesn't measure its performance in that. It measures this performance in requests per second, not records. And so if we can get more batching in each of those two different segments, you know, the batch of records per partition and the batch of records per node, we get higher throughputs. We got less requests per second. We get less load on the broker to perform all that.
0: Right. And you don't normally have that much control from a programmer's perspective over which broker you're connected to, right?
1: Not, not typically, because um, it's you can kind of manipulate where partitions live and try to isolate common partitions and topics together on common nodes to help that. Um, you can also kind of override your own partitioner if you choose. Um, but not not too much control, but at least having them together saves you a ton of performance potential. So,
0: So you're better off rather than is this fair? You're better off rather than trying to control which broker you're connecting to. Have a single producer that's going to manage that for you.
1: Like, yeah, yeah. Because now we're now we're aggregating topics, we're aggregating partitions, we're aggregating connections. Um, I mean, you, you look at Confluent Cloud and you look at what we're measuring you on, um, and your performance and CKU values, and that's you know connections, that's bandwidth, that's um, requests per second load on the backside and stuff so this kind of helps minimize that that cost margin and increase your performance okay. capabilities and
0: i'm see i'm often interested in things like throughput for real time systems so batch batching's great but uh, sorry latency Right. This is what I'm trying to get to. What's the trade-off between throughput and latency with batching? How do you decide what to do there?
1: Yeah. So that that kind of comes into a few adjustments. Um, a lot of the time, you know, it's adjusting your linger ms um, and your your size boundaries because um, in all things Kafka, we typically have the two boundaries: time and size. Um, so manipulating those, but There's always a base cost, right? It's going to cost me X amount of time, because typically we think of latency and time, to send a message from your producer to your broker and your broker to your consumer and such. And that's just going to have a flat cost, right? And so it's finding what that cost is, adjusting those thresholds to meet um, either on par or halfway through, cause you know, we are asynchronous, so we can't have more in flight, but adjusting that to where we're, we're having enough re- requests in flight. We're not, you know, too many requests in flight at the same time. We're taking advantage of the fact that it's going to cost us 30 seconds. Well, or 30 milliseconds, <laughs> um, so we're now able to say, well, if my baseline is thirty milliseconds, maybe I set my linger to fifteen. Maybe I, you know, adjust for that aspect. And now I, I think I'm we should pause there. Doing...
0: You should explain to me what, and all of us, what linger ms is, because not everyone's going to know that.
1: Yeah, so linger ms is one of the primary Kafka producer settings, typically. And it controls the time boundary of batching. Um, So the Kafka producer always attempts to batch records by topic and partition before sending them off. And, you know, we have the size boundary, but Linger MS tends to be the time boundary. And most people run into it first because, again, they're thinking of latency and time. Mm. So let's adjust our time. Um, but that controls the notion of when we open a new batch, how long am I willing to leave that batch open before I consider it closed and ready to send?
0: Right. So I set ling I decide I'm going to set Linger MS to the very minimum and that way it will send every record immediately, which sounds great. Why is that about, bad- is it a bad idea?
1: Yeah, okay. it's. Right. It, it can be. Um, I mean, there are some use cases out there where doing that is, it's perfectly fine. Um, typically, the, you know, those are seen in our IoT solutions, things like that, where you're trying to get the minimalist latency possible, you're willing to have massive Kafka clusters to do so, even though you might not be sending a whole lot of data in terms of size but you want that minimal latency. You don't care about ordering. You don't care about a number of things to get that latency. Um, but in 90% of these cases out there, you're going to want to set that linger. You're going to want to balance that with the, your cost. You know What's it going to cost me to send across my network? Things like that. Um, and get that batching because that batching is going to increase that performance and workload on your brokers. So not not only is it going to help the producer, but it's just going to help what's the load the brokers are doing. Because now I'm getting more records into a single batch and that single batch into a request or multiple batches into a request to that broker. And now, you know, I'm not sending one request for every single record, which is the work, yeah, work variant yeah. on so the broker, the, right?
0: The almost... It's kind of analogous to the transactional overhead, right? That you're paying for each mm-hmm. for each batch. Okay, okay, that makes exactly. that makes sense to me. So, before we get off that, it's, are there any signs I should be looking for that I've set Lingra MS badly?
1: What's the symptom? Um. So usually the symptom a lot of the time is, A, I mean, kind of to the point earlier, a lot of people don't even know linger MS exists to begin with. Um, we're used to plugging in the Kafka client and just rolling with it. And typically out of the box, it's perfect. You know, like a lot of use cases just run out of the box just fine. Um, so if you're still running the defaults, you probably need to go and evaluate it from that perspective. Um, That's usually kind of our first look at is let's go look at these properties you're setting. Are you adjusting it? Um, The other is just kind of looking at, you know, the producer is going to report metrics. And this is kind of one of the big things too, is make sure you're monitoring everything. Kafka, you know, in our Java realm, we kick out a ton of metrics into, you know, mBeans and JMX. Mm-hmm. Um, same with the brokers and some of those metrics are actually, what is your percentage of records per request, um, in, in terms of counts. Um, and you can back that out to a one minute rate and stuff like that. And actually see, am I getting a good, re- you know, good record to request rate percentage and knowing, you know, am I doing well there? Um, cause that's going to boil down to really looking at your brokers and looking at, uh, primarily two, two metrics that come out of there. One is, you know, the idle thread percentage uh, request idle handler thread percentage um, and that request handler queue, right? Cause this is, these are the threads and this is the queue that is handling those requests that the producers and consumers and admin clients and everything talking to Kafka have to pass through. And, If you're spending, you know, a lot of that queue not very idle and stuff like that, that means, you know, you're overworking your brokers potentially. And let's see if we can tune out and get more out of those brokers for their current value.
0: Which I would, my first point of call would be to do larger batches so that the queue deals with more in each step. All right. Okay.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's usually the biggest starting area is let's get batches better um, and, and adjusting. I mean, over time, we kind of might figure out what a good batch size is, you know, at the time. But a year from now, maybe you've doubled or tripled or quadrupled your, you know, number of records you're trying to produce. Let's reevaluate it, you know. It's something that's never going to stop changing and you should probably look at it over time. Yeah. Do you find,
0: I mean, it seems like one of those things where in a lot of cases, people writing software to produce to kafka there's not like a natural batching in their domain
1: not not typically Um, a lot of them tend to you know they don't think about the batching they're just trying to get the records across they might be thinking of it in the terms of an order by the key things like that yeah um so it's kind of an abstracted away thing that we kind of put in these you know smart kafka producers and stuff so it's just kind of adjusting and tuning for that
0: right yeah so you got to start thinking of it as you grow is that fair to say
1: yeah Hmm.
0: well that's that's fair i expect to learn more about the internals of a system as i grow with it
1: yeah i mean it it kind of is what makes learning new tech fun is you, you get to start out with it you get to start playing with it and then as you start getting, you know, more workloads on it, you get to discover all those little intricacies that you didn't expect to discover when you first started out. You know, how does this work under the covers? I want to go adjust the engine, and, you know, play. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's kind of the heart of being an engineer, right? It's getting to play and learn and experiment.
0: Yeah. You've always got to know like one step below the covers to do a really good job, I find. hmm Yeah okay so i'm going back to your laundry list of things that can go wrong (laughs) um and uh, so you said not enabling compression which sounds fair to me but what what where does compression matter and what and there are choices of compression right so what Mm -hmm. which kind of compression do i enable
1: yeah i mean I mean, kind of to the, that aspect of earlier, you know, it's, it's one of those settings that out of the box is not enabled. Right. We don't have compression on by default, but we do offer four different kinds of compression. Right. And um, it, it's something you should turn on that compression happens at that batching layer. So all those records that you get into that batch targeting that partition, we're able to compress those down at that time before they're transmitted across the wire. Okay. So that alone, you know, we're going to reduce our network overhead or network consumption, you know, which is important, especially in clouds where you pay for that network, right? How much bytes you're sending across. But it actually counters on a counter side that a lot of people go unnoticed, which is the consumer, Right. Well, that producer's compressing it. That consumer is the one who actually gets to deflate it. So now not only am I saving bandwidth going to Kafka, I'm also saving bandwidth coming out of Kafka. Um, I'm also saving my, my disk consumption, right? Now I'm able to fit more into a smaller space on the disks of every broker. So I'm able to handle that that a little smoother, if you've got SSL turned on, we all know, you know, Kafka and its zero copy capabilities. Well, once TLS is there, zero copy kind of goes out of, out of there. Well, compression's also going to help there, right? That's yeah, less I that I have to copy, less that I have to move, less that I have to stream to disk. So you get some kind of performance gains yeah. there. But when setting it, there's, you know, there's some trade-offs, right? We're going to have CPU cost, right? That producer is going to take the brunt of the CPU costs. That consumer is going to take the brunt of the decompression costs, right? And so that's why we offer the options we do for compression is what, what sacrifice are you willing to make, right? Um, and we have things like LZO, which has you know really good compression um, at the benefit of reduced CPU cost. But then you have all the way up to something like Gzip, which is going to get you the best compression you can, but have a lot more CPU costs. And then there's some of the newer ones, like with a lot of the newer Kafka clients, you actually have now access to ZSTD, right? Which is kind of balancing act between those two different compression capabilities and figuring out, you know, well, I do want utmost compression that I can, but I do want to have a little more CPU to my producer, um, so you can account for that, yeah. but in the grand scheme of things, you know, I can scale producers a lot cheaper typically than I can scale my brokers. And so that's something to keep it, keep in mind while you're thinking through those cost measurements.
0: So you're offloading that compute cost to the producer side and the consumer mm-hmm. side. Yeah. And the free, yeah, I can see how that would free up the broker. So just to, so. Oh, that brings up two questions, but let's start to clarify the first one. So, when you enable compression, you are compressing a batch of records at the producer side. The compressed data goes over the wire and is actually stored as a compressed batch of records on the topic. Correct. And it it will be shipped back out as the same batch and not not actually decompressed till it reaches the consumer
1: side. Correct. Yeah. The 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 producer's able to you know it's going to put the whole batch or attempt to put the whole batch in the request depending on again size boundary constraints mm-hmm. um but that's going to get it over there we're going to write it to disk part of that you know payload is a bunch of metadata right that's i'm going to have my raw record compression but then I have metadata that's going to say okay you know Here's the number of records that are in this batch. Here's, you know, any extra information I need to know about it, its size, things like that. That's going to get on the broker and that's how that broker is going to know how to handle on the consumption side and, you know, on the on the consumption side that batch might get in one request, it might need to take two fetch requests. Again, that all depends on size tunings. So those are, you know, those are some things, you know, when you start getting into deep performance tuning, you can start messing with is, well, I know my average batch size is this, well, let me go adjust my fetch size on the other side to that, to account for that, and try to minimize splitting and things like that. But that's it's getting the deep performance, and really trying to squeak out as much as possible.
0: That sounds very deep in the weeds. <laughs> This, just to be clear, this isn't a day one concern, right?
1: No, no. (laughs) Good. This is, this is, this is, I've bought million dollar hardware and I really want to see where I can take it.
0: Right. Yeah. Because you get to work with clients of all those sizes,
1: right? Oh yeah. I mean, between customers that are running in cloud and customers that are running on hardware with, you know, very expensive rate arrays or going straight JBOD on NVMEs and there, there's all kinds of out there.
0: I can believe. I can believe. So the the other question that came to mind from that is, and um, actually two questions. Oh God, you're making me think of so many questions. That's my job. That's okay. I'm allowed to ask you as many questions as I like. Right. First one is if you're compressing on the producer side, and maybe you don't know this, maybe you don't know the answer, but there are plans to have schema validation from schema registry. On the Mm -hmm. broker side, right? So if it's compressed, how's that going to play in?
1: Um, It's it gets a little more complicated in those. Um, The broker, for the most part, is scanning through those records. Um, And for those that don't know how the schema registry and that kind of works, one of the things we put in there is this magic byte, right? It's attached to every single record at the beginning of its serialized data set, and so we're able to just scan through that real quickly because part of that metadata is their offsets and where things are at. Um, So we're actually able to pick that up, get that metadata, go, oh, this is its ID. I know that based on this topic, its um, subject naming strategy is this. Now I can go look that up and evaluate, okay, is this schema ID, the correct and valid schema ID for this topic? And in in its order and stuff like that, because um, we are in schema registry and all that. It's you know it's a subject that contains many schemas as the version history goes, and yeah. the, I, schema ID is what we put in the the metadata there of that magic byte. So, and I'm okay. sure there's a lot of more details there that I'm skimming over <laughs> and simplifying on the broker side, but in layman's, that's kind of what's happening.
0: Okay. We'll also pull people in from the schema registry <laughs> team for the podcast at some point. But the other thing I was going to ask you, and this is really in the weeds, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because you've got an overhead, you've got a computation overhead for compression. You've also got one for encryption, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know what the balance of that tends to be?
1: Um, I mean, it's kind of one of those that is your mileage is going to vary and you really like, you know, to my earlier point monitor everything. If you don't okay. even like think you don't need it right now, you'll need it eventually. Okay. And it's better to have it now and be able to see that history when it comes up, than it's going to be, well, now I'm scrambling. I'm trying to get some stuff out. I didn't monitor this. Now I got to go get it in there. And now I don't have any history. I have just now. Right. Yeah. And yeah. that's kind of one of those things is going to help you with that balancing act of, you know, when I turn these things on, you know, how did my CPU profiles change? How did my load profile change? You know, do I need to add more more nodes to my producer pool or my consumer pool? You know, you won't know if you don't measure it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I've definitely been in that situation where you think you've got a performance problem and you think, oh, these look like things I should monitor. They're important. I'll start monitoring those. And you it's no help at all for a couple of weeks until you've actually got some data in.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, to that point, I mean, we do have, if you ever talk to any of your people at Confluent, we do have sample dashboards for Grafana and things like that and Prometheus configurations and YAML configs that come with our Ansible and things like that that can you know, drastically help just get yourself off the bat in you know the best practices on that that monitoring aspect with you know minimal effort.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's probably something out there for whatever tool stack you use to monitor at the moment, right?
1: We're trying to build out quite a bit. I know we've yeah. we've kind of built a lot around you know Prometheus and Grafana because those are kind of the de facto anymore, um, and into you know your Elasticsearch and is in Splunk's and AppDynamics and New Relic and Datadog, and so there's. There's dashboards for a lot. Yeah. Cool. Um, so another one from your
0: producer list, um, which again, like compression, it's like, yeah, of course, but give me the details, Nicoletta. Not defining a producer callback. Yeah. So when I produce the record, explain what it is first to the people that don't know, and then tell me why, how you should do it properly.
1: Yeah. Um, so when you use the Kafka producer... You can send just your Kafka Kafka record um, in it. That's typically where most people start. You know, that's your key value headers, timestamp, all that kind of stuff. But there's a second attribute you can optionally give, and that is the producer callback, right? And while the Kafka producer, you know, is going to try to get that record over there as best as it can, it's going to use all of its little retry policies and attempts and stuff that it has baked into itself, there's inevitably sometimes where that's just not going to happen, right? Whether that is, you know, brokers are down for a long period of time and the retries are exhausted, um, or you get into this concept of back pressure. Um, And it's not something most people get into right off the bat. And that's you need to have a way to handle that. And that's, that's this callback. And that callback allows you to subscribe to your record and know that was it successful or was it not successful? And you get that through, you know, typical callback structure, you know, in Java, it's, it's an interface definition with a single function that's going to get back either, you know, the record that you produced with some extra metadata, like which partition did it actually write to, which node, things like that. But it also comes back with a potential optional exception. And you want to evaluate that exception looking for well, what what happened, right? And this can come into play, you know, if you if you've set your linger too low, you've lowered your retries too much, and you're actually airing out. Cause if I don't capture that retry, well then I don't know my record didn't actually make it right. I assumed it did, but I yep. didn't know I exhausted retries. The producer tried to tell me, but I gave it nothing to tell, to be able to tell me. Right. Um, yeah, we need
0: to get away from ship and hope.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's also a way to get that signal back that says from the, from the broker side that says, Hey, you're sending me too much. Everybody's sending me too much. I need to push back a little bit, right? That that request queues full, that request, you know, handlers are doing as much work as they can take on. Maybe the network threads are, you know, maxed out. Something on the brokers is, it's slow. And that that callback kind of gives you that extra signal on top of just failure of, hey, you timed out. We timed out for whatever reason. I need you to, you know, pause and handle gracefully back to yourself, right? Like whether that's maybe, you know, auto scaling out a little bit further, your cluster to handle, you know, this pause and the cycle a little bit more, maybe it's, you know, pushing upstream from your application further and saying, Hey, can you slow down a little bit? You're, you know, you're spamming the system, you know, and yeah. it's kind of, a good measure and make sure you're doing both, you know, capture that exception, make sure you're retrying, you know, maybe the error is, you know, to your early point, maybe the schema you are using is wrong and actually not valid. And we are t- trying to tell you that this record will never get produced because it is invalid yeah. and you want to capture that and be able to handle that, whether that's, you know, using a policy of a dead letter queue, um, sending it off to another topic that, you know, for those that don't know dead letter queuing, sending it off to a secondary topic topic to be evaluated at a later time, whether that's yeah. through an automated system or feeding that into a you know elastic search log somewhere to search against something, um, or just saying, hey, I got this, I need a back pressure, things like that. So there's a yeah. lot of things that can be captured out of that that callback.
0: Yes, yeah, I've I've definitely got it in my mind for error handling, but I'm definitely guilty of not considering it for things like back pressure.
1: Yeah, it's the back pressure is usually a concept that kind of goes overlooked or just not not heard of, not known until it becomes an issue, right? Mm. So it is something so I can... would encourage all to learn and understand because you know as you grow, it is a concept you will run into. And you'll run into it a lot in distributed systems.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any tips? Because it feels like, you know, you send a request, you send a, you produce a record, you send it off and eventually some point asynchronously, you'll get this thing saying, whoa, slow down. And it often doesn't feel like a natural thing to put in the programming model to say, I'm going to slow down on the new stuff because the old thing told me to slow down. Do you have any tips on how to actually program that?
1: Um, I mean, it kind of depends on some of the use cases um, I've seen in certain cases where they absolutely cannot pause the upstream for whatever reason, um, whether that, you know, maybe that's SLAs to third party customers to the coffee cluster um, or, you know, whatnot. And so they'll just start buffering that to disk. Right. So you use something to buffer it to disk, kind of hold it there, you know, until things catch back up. Um, or, you know, maybe if this is happening frequently, this is probably a good case of let's adjust our linger, let's increase those batching, let's try to get more out of it, um, to handle that a little more gracefully. Um, I've also seen in instances where, um, you absolutely can't even do the buffer to disk, you need guarantees. They'll just have a secondary Kafka cluster that's available off to the side, and that's the spill cluster effectively, right? My first one's overtaken. Let me spill over to this secondary cluster. I'll start writing it there. And we'll aggregate it on the backside when it when it comes to it. Okay. And this kind of happens with so, like launch events. Um, think like hmm. video games launching and I need to, you know, have this guarantee that, you know, I've got my Kafka cluster. While we can scale that up reasonably fast, that still takes time. I'm gonna pay the cost. Let me have just a secondary cluster off to the side, just in case. And so you have kind of this spillover for this, because you don't know. I mean, sometimes your launch event goes really well. Sometimes it doesn't go as well as you thought it would go.
0: <laughs> yeah. And sometimes yeah, it goes. seen that in the wild.
1: <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it goes beyond what you could even measure. So.
0: Yeah, and that's a nice problem to have, but you still want to solve it, right?
1: Yep. Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
0: No. So to summarize that, then you're saying you might, you might have a programmatic solution to back pressure, but at the very least you want to be aware that it's a requirement to tune
1: for. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's move on in your, we should publish this list as a handy reference guide to people. Um, Maybe we'll do that in the show notes, but moving on on your list to consumer side, right? Uh, And it feels like this is going to be a parallel to the producer side. You've said to me, a uh, problem with using one consumer per thread in a service.
1: Yeah. So, you know, kind of the same on the producer side. I mean, we, tr- we try to take advantage of those fetches. Um, we try to take advantage of in-memory buffers, things like that. Um, and it's not necessarily a requirement. Like while the consumer out of the box itself, isn't a thread safe thing. It is capable of doing it. Um, and that's that's usually where we encourage it right like a lot of the time maybe the evaluation of a single record does take a while so your first inclination and it's kind of you know kind of been always the push in kafka which is well let me just add more partitions let me add just more consumers and i'll just scale it that way right well you might still be one threaded microservices things like that that's not always the best nature right cuz more partitions you know, each partition does have a cost. Each consumer does have a cost. You know, you have fault tolerances there to deal with um, and such. So moving to a multi-threaded model can help at a certain point, right? You know, you don't want to get too many consumers out there, too many partitions, because it's it's going to affect some things. And I'll go down there in a second. But <laughs> you can move to a model where I have one consumer, I thread that off, um, you know, the records coming out of that consumer to a thread pool and I manage that. This usually means you're starting to get a little more into the weeds of the Kafka consumer and how you, you know, tune it and manipulate it and do stuff like that. Um, you're also going to have to start managing your own offsets at this point because now you've got to do thread coordination. Um, so it's not just safe enough to say, well, if I got to my next poll, then that most likely means I can commit all the records that were just handled, right? Because out of the box, that's what the consumer assumes. So you're going to need to start managing your own offsets, keeping track of that. You know, when you do do that, make sure you do start using the rebalance callback, which is on you know on my list of other things. But uh, yet,
0: but well, you can choose if it's time to go into that right now or push on.
1: <laughs> come back to that one. Okay. But kind of to the earlier point there, you know, when I get too many consumers, I start getting to a point where, you know, each consumer is going to require at least one partition to get the parallelism of work. And now I get to a point where my fault vector kind of happens. You know, I've got a lot more services out there. I've got, you know, if one of them happens, I've got to rebalance. Well, now my, you know, my consumer group is so big that rebalance can take a little longer, right? I've got to shuffle between all of these nodes, you know, hundreds of, you know, consumers potentially, and that's going to take some time. So that means my time to recover is a little more delayed. That's going to affect, you know, my guarantees, latency guarantees, things like that. It's also, you know, kind of one of the things that goes overlooked is, well, now I've got more partitions that can actually now affect the producer, right? Right to some of those earlier things we talked about, batching is a very big key to performance in Kafka, right? And well, now if I have more partitions, I'm going to have more of this concept of what I call spray, right? I'm going to have to put more records across more brokers, across more partitions, and now I'm reducing my potential for a bigger batch, right?
0: Right. Yeah, yeah so i've always got what why you want more partitions but now i start to see why you want fewer as well
1: yeah yeah it's it's a balancing act i mean a lot of you know what people think about on this is oh just more partitions i'll scale up and that's kind of what everybody gets out of the box but that's not necessarily the case it's something to think about don't just always add more partitions think about it a little bit is there a better way to go about this that isn't just adding more partitions. While it's the simplest answer, it can be a costly answer.
0: Right, yeah. And then it's not easy to change that number down the line.
1: No, yeah. You, shrinking partition counts is a little harder than growing partition counts. Mm. Do you have any tips for that, if you have to? um, Not really. It's a, <laughs> it's it's that bad a painful experience. At, at okay. Beginning. Because, I mean, you're usually you're talking about new part, new topics, different partition counts, you know, possibly, you know, the use of replicator or something to migrate data if you need to. You know, it's it's not an easy endeavor to go down at at the moment. Hopefully we'll get to a point where we're able to do that for you, but that's not available at the moment.
0: Feels like it's not. Like, there's a technical reason why it's hard, but there's also you're changing the semantics of ordering a bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've got... That's
0: get, always going to be with us.
1: Yeah, you've got you get the ordering faults, like, well, do I repartition all this data that was in these partitions I'm trying to effectively delete, you know, if I want to preserve that data? Or it's adverse effect, you know, like for those folks that care about ordering and stuff like that, adding partitions is... It's a big event potentially, and a lot of times you need to time it for a time of day to do it because um, you need to guarantee that order somehow, right? And you need, you know, when I add that partition, my ordering's going to be out of whack for a little bit, right? While all those partition yep. and tables realign. So.
0: Okay. So <laughs> the best advice is to pick the right number first time as always.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's kind of one of the things I kind of start out with when people ask about that is like in your development phase and your staging phase, well, let's figure out what your unit of scale is first, right? How much is one consumer going to be able to do? Um, See what that looks like, you know, is that, you know, X number of records per second. What's that look like? You know, when, when I need to add that next consumer, what's that look like, you know, what's that threshold and go okay. Well, so I know to date I'm going to be dealing with this much data. I know it's going to be like this that means I'm going to start out with this many consumers. I know in, you know, a quarter, two quarters, three quarters, ideally a year out that my growth trajectory is going to look like this. And now that I know what my unit of scale is, I know how many consumers I'm possibly going to have in a year's time or a half year's time you know, depending on how far you can forecast out there. Yeah. That's going to give you a good idea of, you know, how many consumers should I, you know, partitions should I start out with today, right? If I know in a year's time, I'm going to go from, you know, 20 consumers to 100, I should probably start out with 100. You know, let's minimize those those events of repartitioning and, you know, ordering adjustments and stuff to, you know, once a year, you know?
0: Yeah. Sure, it's the first time anyone's ever given me a concrete plan of how to guess this.
1: <laughs> it's it's kind of the best I've kind of figured out that tends to work is, you know, let's start, you know, to the earlier point, let's monitor, let's know where we're at, let's evaluate this, you know, and let's really try to send as much data as we can through, let's baseline our application, because a lot of people don't even know what the baseline of their application is to begin with, mm. and so yeah, yeah. you know if you don't know that, you don't know what the scaling capabilities are, right?
0: Yeah, it's often very hard to predict, but if you can simulate it, it gives you a lot more intelligence, right? Oh
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. we we have a number of tools that can help you simulate that data too. It doesn't have to be end to end. You know, you can use you know the the CLI tools, or if you really want to get it into it, the um, Trogdor, if you haven't played with that, that comes with Kafka. Um, I
0: only know that from StrongBad. What's Trogdor?
1: (laughs) Um, It is kind of a utility that comes bundled with Kafka that can let you really evaluate performance metrics. Um, It usually goes unnoticed, but it is one of the major tools we use to evaluate the performance of every single release we do here. You know, make sure we're not backtracking on performance when we do changes, things like that. So it can be something that can help you test your applications as well beyond just, you know, the, the typical, the producer perf test CLI tool or, you know, even mm-hmm. JMeter. JMeter has some capabilities, you know, for those that have used JMeter and like it, you can do Kafka stuff.
0: What's tra- what's Trugdoor so. actually doing to test?
1: Um, it's able to basically pro- act as a producer consumer at scale, um, and really, you know, replay a number of different scenarios. Like, well, maybe my batching needs to look like this, my request rate needs to look like that, and you can okay. really get into it. That's... And I think we actually have a bunch of stuff on Ooh. developer about it. Okay,
0: we'll link to that in the show notes.
1: We're on developer or a blog post. That
0: that sounds like a a huge topic in itself, but at least we know where to go to start simulating these things.
1: Oh, yes. Performance simulation can be a couple hour long (laughs) conversation. Well, we'll
0: move on because we don't. We'll we'll spin that out to a separate podcast, perhaps. But okay, so going back to your list, something that looks like my task board, actually, because you've said it's a danger to overcommit.
1: Tell me about that. Yeah. So this, yeah. So this kind of starts out a lot of the time, like you start getting into that multi-threading of the consumer, you start managing your own offsets and you start doing, you know, a boundary of commit. Like a lot of people try to just do it at the end of the poll or every record and stuff. And when you think about that and think about to the producer's aspect, well, every commit is a produced record, right? Every time I commit something, I've got to produce a record back to Kafka to commit that. And that's, you know, it's usually a record going into the consumer offsets topic for those that haven't seen it, um, which is a compacted topic. Um, if you didn't know. Um, so we've got all these records going back. And if I'm over committing, I'm over producing, And the way the consumer does that is you know, one commit is one request to the broker and getting to the earlier point, well, the broker handles requests. And so I'm putting work on it on those aspects so I can overload the work queue, you know, and take away capabilities from just getting records in and out of the broker to just handle Hmm. offset commits, right? Um, The secondary that a lot of people don't even think about is it's, load that it's going to put on the compactor, right? Which is this back end thread that goes around compacting these compacted topics, right? Cleaning them up, stuff like that. Well, if I'm over committing, I've got now just a ton of data that that compactor has got to crawl through and compact out and get to its final stage. And that's going to, you know, put load on it. Maybe it's not going to get to your other compacted topics as fast as you would like it to do. So now you're dealing with excess tuning there. It's also going to put extra load on your disk volumes to deal with all that. So it kind of can cause a number of issues on the broker side if if you're over committing. And some performance loss on the consumer, right? That single sender thread that those consumers have on the back end that talks to the broker now has to handle all those requests and the return trips and all that while also trying to facilitate fetch requests. So it can be a performance penalty. So all while you're
0: committing, you're kind of blocked on fetching the next one, right? Which makes sense, but
1: um, it's able to do both. But you know, it's now juggling both the sends and the response of both of those those request types, right? The fetch consumer requests and the commit. Um, request types
0: it's that's I'm, I'm pleased with that because it's a very similar mental model that i have to worry about on committing those offsets as producing i feel like the same driving principle yeah. is keeping the two efficient so i don't have to think of two different principles at once which makes me happy
1: yeah the only downside is you can't batch up requests into a sing or a batch up commits into a singular request right you're kind of you're kind of stuck with the one at a time because if we try to batch it, then that kind of removes the point of <laughs> yeah, trying to commit. You're your trying to commit like light. a high
0: watermark, right? So your solution exactly. is to try and consume several records before you try and commit the offsets?
1: Yeah, I tried to try to find a balancing act. Um, typically, we like to do you know either a count threshold or a time threshold of rec- records. Um, doing it, you know, time usually ends up being where everybody usually goes. Cause you know, again, most people are thinking of records per second. They know their volume of records they are producing and managing and stuff like that. So it's usually a concept most everybody's familiar with. So doing it on a time boundary tends to come a little more second nature thought to it. Okay. Um, but, that
0: surprises me because it seems like s- something that's so domain specific.
1: It, it can be. Um, I mean, some, you might go to a, a count threshold or a transactional threshold. Maybe you need to do, you know, a number of things before you can say, okay, my watermark moves. Like maybe you're putting data into a database table, right? Um, so maybe you're doing a transaction there and you want to manage that commit that way. Um, but a lot of the time, that's not usually the use case, but it is out there, so usually most of the time, your time boundary or a or a number of records boundary tends to be the de facto everybody starts yep. out with. And
0: is that does that cover everything we need to think about on like performance tuning the actual fetching of data?
1: Um, not not completely. Um, there one of the setting sets that uh, like a lot of people just don't know about is how do you tune the fetch right? Um. And a lot of the time they start out with, you know, maybe I turn my, my consumers off for a little bit. Maybe my deployment is a red, green or you know, kind of those different types where I'm stopping everything. I'm spinning up everything or maybe I had a bug. The whole thing didn't work and I'm relaunching it or you're migrating, you know, an older batch driven ETL system to Kafka. So you still have kind of some of that consumption lingering. Um and what you usually tend to see a lot of the time is you'll be watching your consumer lags, right? And you start seeing one or multiple partitions that are assigned to consumer start falling behind. But you'll see like one partition that's just fine for that consumer, but all the others are failing. Yeah. And that's usually the symptom of needing to tune your fetches, right? And there's two, two main ones. That come into play, right? And like all things, again, we have time and size boundaries. <laughs> uh, in this case, it's usually the size boundary that's coming into play here. And when we when we fetch a request from the brokers, we usually say, you know, one of two things. You know, I'm willing to wait this long to get my data, yep. or I want this much at the minimum or the maximum, right? Yeah. And so we start needing to tune the maximum on that threshold, which is, you know, I need to get more data back, you know, out of the default, we're saying, you know, 50 megs of data currently um, that I want in total. But we do have another setting that goes unnoticed a lot of the time, which is our fetch per partition or max, max, partition, max partition fetch bytes, right. um, which is one meg and uh, out of the box for default. And so if I'm doing ETL stuff, I probably am going to want to bring that up. And a lot of people's first is, well, let's take that to the 50 meg. Well, if I'm saying I'm willing to take 50 megs on a single partition, but my max fetch request response size is 50 megs, well, now I'm locked on that partition, right? I'm going to keep reading from that partition before I go to the next ones. Because the brokers and the way all of this consumption wants to do is it wants to drain a partition first before moving its kind of cursor to the next partition okay. that it might be handling for you. So if I can adjust that to where I say, even though that one partition might have 50 megs worth of data available to me, but I have three partitions I'm consuming from as a single consumer. Because I'm low balance. Or maybe, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I'm going to want to set my fetch max as a whole to something big enough to account for all three of those partitions getting a chance to send data back to me in that fetch request. Right. So I'm not locking on that one because that broker is going to kind of send, okay, well, here's your first Meg from this partition. I've backed out that partitions, you know, setting you told me, I'm going to give you the next same amount from the next partition and so forth. So this kind of helps balance that, that issue that pops up,
0: you know? Right. So, do I in that case? Am I going to say to myself, "Well, once it's low balance, my consumers will probably consume from three partitions on average." So, I'm going to divide the big value by three, and that'll be my smaller value.
1: Um, you can do it that way. It um, it, it's that's usually a good baseline to start with. Um, when you start getting into it, I mean, out of the box. Do you remember, you know, the default is 50 megs total, yeah, one yeah. meg minimum. Um, usually, where people are starting out at, at with is they start manipulating that partition fetch and they start increasing it and forget about the other one. So, before they know it, they're fetching 50 megs. Yeah. They're locked on one partition now. So, it is, you know, a balancing act as time goes on, as your volume increases and maybe your performance gains um, increase. Like, especially if you start doing that multi-threaded consumption model, maybe you start getting more threads on a single instance. Maybe they're able to handle a lot more. Maybe you're not keeping up with that thread queue and you're starving those threads. So you start increasing those fetch capabilities and things like that, increasing that buffer. So just some things to keep in mind as you start tuning tune both
0: right and i can both. what we're gonna have to put in the show notes is like a cheat sheet for all the parameters nicoletta says you really should know about
1: there's there's a few of them there's a lot of metrics too that keep an eye on that go overlooked like like to the earlier stuff on the producer that the metrics around you know records per request um the average compression ratios things like that they're usually ones people don't think about. They're they're wanting to monitor and make sure the system's healthy, but usually performance of the system goes overlooked initially.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's true. I've I've got a lot of sympathy for for the people on the other side of your desk when you're talking to them. Because it's like you out of the box it seems to work quite well and you go and look at the docs for which parameters look interesting, and there are loads of them. And how oh, do you navigate? That- <laughs>
1: Well, and you, I mean you, the docs alone are ominous. You go through them, and it's hundreds of these things, and you've got to read every single one of them, and so it's it's a lot to do. Yeah. Um, it is one of those things I would highly encourage those that are wanting to get into really understanding those to check out many of the videos we're doing on these and our education team's work they've done because um, they've. They kind of help you understand exactly what that that parameter covers and what it's actually doing, because it's one thing to read that blurb that is in the docs. It's another thing to actually truly understand what you are doing. You know, like if you were to read the stuff around the producer batching, you might not get the full picture of what's actually going on. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. And we have um, we have a course on the internals of how Kafka works by June Rao which feels like it's definitely your first port of call for understanding this stuff under the hood.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: We'll link to that in the show notes. Um, We have a podcast uh, with him too, so uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. Richly cross-referenced podcast, this one.
1: Oh, yes. Anything from June is worth watching.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, he's a smart guy. And he knows the insides of it like the back of his hand.
1: Oh, yes. okay.
0: I have another, I have another one from your list and you've touched on this briefly, but let's go into it in depth now. It's a mistake to forget to provide a consumer rebalance listener. What's that and why should I be providing it and what should it do?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So kind of, kind of similar to the producer callback. This is more on the consumption side and it's, it's not really dealing with the per record. It's dealing with, the failure scenario, right? So when you start managing your own offsets, most people forget that this even exists or didn't even notice um, because it's typically it's another one of those properties or it's another you know if you're in the librd realm, it's a function call that you've got to make or some definition of the kind. And I'll speak to the Java side. It's it's an interface that you're implementing mm-hmm. um, that gets called when there's a rebalance event, right? And rebalance events happen for a number of reasons, right? You know, you're redeploying your consumers applications. So you've got consumers going online, offline as they roll through the restarts or, you know, a broker went down, I need to rebalance where the listeners go, you know, whatever, right? So the consumer group needs to rebalance the partition assignments, right? Yeah. Um, this function actually gets called, right, on every single consumer before it starts. And there's there's two functions that are defined in this interface. One is, I'm about to rebalance, close things up. And the other is, the rebalance is done, here's your new assignments, right? Right. And this kind of gives you a chance to say, hey, you know, especially if you're doing the thread model, hey, the rebalance event's about to happen. Let me stop the work I'm doing because I might lose partitions. And it will tell you, you know, if you're using cooperative, the new cooperative sticky stuff, you know, you get some hint of which partitions are going away and which aren't. But it gives you the chance to go stop the work a little bit, wrap up where you're at because you can hold it for a period of time um, there is a timeout, so be cautious of that. But you can hold the work, hold the rebalance a little bit, wrap up what you're doing, do your final offset commits, clean yourself up. Oh, so you are allowed to,
0: sorry, you are allowed to like do that last bit of work of saying, commit my offsets before it goes yeah. down. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's, that's in effect what it's kind of designed for, is to give you that opportunity to, to say, okay, oh. something's going to happen. The partitions I'm currently latched on to are going to change. Somebody else is going to get this work. If I don't commit my offsets now, there's a potential for duplicate consumption, right? I might have finished the work, but I haven't committed offsets yet. There's that differential. Yeah. This is yep. your chance to commit that, not replay the work. cancel work in progress. Clear any work queues that you might have. It's kind of your chance to clean up Get ready for new records to come from different partitions.
0: Hit save before the laptop reboots. That kind of exactly, yeah.
1: exactly. Okay. So and that, and that gets kind of broadcasted to every consumer in the consumer group who's still in the group. Um, so you know, if if you left, you issued your leave group request. If you left, you're probably not going to get it. Um, but as long as you're in it, you'll get it. You can handle it. Every consumer gets it, so everybody gets to handle it. It's not just the group leader um, that's going to get it. So it's not like trying to do your own consumer partitioner or any of that. So.
0: This feels like a real like post research and development. This is when you're really into production. You're living with the reality of com- computers coming up and down all the time, right? Oh yeah. This is
1: yeah. I mean it's 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 never a factor of you know. Is it going to die? It's always a factor of it's gonna die. When is it gonna die? And am I gonna handle that death gracefully? Yeah, right. You know, especially especially when we start thinking Kubernetes and its whole you know cold the herd model of deployment management. <laughs> yeah,
0: <clears throat> yeah. Prepared is uh, if you're prepared for it, then you're gonna survive it, right? hmm. Oh, okay. So looking at my list again there's so much you've given us here um uh, undersized
1: per kafka consumer instances yeah what does that mean um i mean this kind of plays into some of it and it happens in the producer side too which is a lot of the time when you first start out maybe you pick that you know that small aws instance node type for whatever reason you know You want, you know, you wanted three or four parallelizations, but as time's gone on, you're now at, you know, 10, 15, 20 consumers in your pool. They're spreading that work all across each other, but they're really small, right? And on both sides, well, now now I've increased my number of producers or I've increased my number of broke or consumers. And the work they're doing, while yes, it's taking up, you know, maybe the one or two CPUs on that node. It's better if I can actually shrink that, right? Let's let's go to four or five, six CPUs because now I'm reducing that spray. That earlier concept I had is, you know, it's not just on the producer going out or the consumer going out to the brokers. It happens on, you know, how many producers do I have and that data hitting those, and vice versa on the consumption side of of that, which is, well, if I have all my data spraying against that front to begin with well, that data is going to be sprayed counter on the backside because I've reduced my potential of batch, right? Yeah, yeah. A record that could have gone to the same partition in the same batch if it landed on the same per- producer, well, now got landed on this producer all the way from this one. So sometimes it's best to not just go out, but also go up. You know, Let's vertical scale that up a little bit. Let's dense those up for those reasons of, you know, let's increase those batch efficiencies. Let's increase those request efficiencies, right? Now I'm, you know, I'm getting that single consumer fetch request, able to get a lot more data from a number of partitions, get that into there, let's spread that work. Maybe we start really moving into that multi-threaded model a little more and taking advantage of it. Because, you know, if I keep scaling out horizontally, I'm going to run into those earlier same problems of I'm adding more partitions. I'm adding more consumers to the consumer group. I'm adding, you know, more, more producers to their side of the pool. And I'm just spreading myself thinner when I could come back up a little bit, go a little vertical and get a little more bang for my buck.
0: Yeah. So again, you've got like trade-offs in different ways, you scale, and you've got to be aware of both and decide which is going to hit the underlying model best.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean it's kind of like a little bit of a rubber band. So you know, it's it's good to start out like let's go horizontal a little bit as time goes on, but at a certain point let's reevaluate and let's pull that elastic back in a little bit, go a little more vertical, tune different properties, and then go a little more elastic again. Kind of kind of do that, you know, because we can't, you know, some of these adjustments like changing your instance type size or adjusting settings a little more. effort involved there than just adding another node to the pool. Um, So, you know, it's kind of one of those things of, you know, maybe every quarter, every other quarter, think about, okay, how can we bring this back in? You know, we've stretched ourselves out a little bit. Let's bring in, let's adjust. Let's make that part of our, you know, quarterly retrospective of, okay, what have we done? How have we grown? Let's, let's adjust, minimize that get re- get reset for the next quarter
0: yeah yeah this i mean we've talked a lot about adjusting lots of different parameters and changing layouts and stuff i just want to be clear here so is this something i'm expecting to do a lot or is it in response to changing growth you know it is kafka this constant you're always going to be maintaining it and tuning it thing or is it Life's going to change around your business and you have to respond to that.
1: It's a little of all of the above, okay. really. Um, it depends on the use case. I mean, there are a lot of use cases out there that the work doesn't grow. You know, maybe it's just, you know, it's a simplified workload. It's, you know, different in whichever way. Um, so their growth, your growth is minimal, right? Or, you know... So a lot of these settings, maybe something you look into once a year, once every other year, once every five years, you know, and some other areas that you like, maybe, you know, you've got Kafka in that main line of your business, you're handling events, you're growing successfully as a startup or even as a, you know, an established enterprise on this new workload or, you know, you're gradually migrating data. Well, all that comes with some effort that needs to be put forth while you know, while we try to make Kafka as scalable as possible, as minimal as possible, sometimes you do, you got to put a little more effort in, you got to figure it out, you got to tune some settings and dive deep.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let me see, let me see if I can uh, wrap this up with what's top of my mind going away from this, and you can tell me if I've missed anything. I don't really want to reduce the number of petitions I've got. I need to understand batching and compression and I should really worry about those callback hooks. And if I do that, I won't be too unhappy in the future. And monitoring. And monitoring.
1: You're monitoring. <laughs> yeah. Yes, don't forget
0: monitoring. If I, if I go away from this with those four things, will I be happy?
1: You'll be happy for a good while. <laughs> like that, That'll get you to some pretty reasonable scales. Um, really tuning the batching and stuff is that next tier. You know, this is this is going from I just start out with Kafka to I'm really using Kafka. I need to scale this up, right? Yeah. And so that's where a lot of these settings and monitoring and metrics really start showing their their own is that next stage. You know, I'm getting a little more advanced with my Kafka usage. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, happy for a long time is probably the best guarantee I've been offered for a while. <laughs> So I think we should probably leave it there. While I could pick your brains for another few hours, um, we'll probably have to bring you back for more another day. But um, Nicoletta, thanks very much. This has been really educational and interesting. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah,
1: thank you.
0: And that was Nicoletta Verbeck sharing some common mistakes and a lot of hard-won knowledge. I think there are going to be a few people who get to the end of this episode and start tweaking a few cluster parameters and batch sizes. So good luck if you're one of them. Um, We're going to put as much of that detail as we can in the show notes. But if you want some more, then take a look at developer.confluent.io. That's our education site for Kafka, and it will give you in-depth guides for a lot of what we've covered today. There's also a really useful course by June Rao that explains how Kafka works under the hood through so many different parts of the system. And if you look at that, you'll really understand how Kafka works and exactly how Nicoletta's advice plays out as your data travels through network threads and IO queues and onto disk. That course also has exercises to cement your knowledge, and if you want to go through those, you'll probably want a Kafka cluster to play with. The easiest way to get one is with Confluent.cloud. Sign up with the code PODCAST100, and we'll give you $100 of extra free credit so you can spend longer on it. Meanwhile, if you have thoughts or questions about today's episode, please get in touch. My contact details are in the show notes, or you can leave us a comment or a like or a thumbs up or a review just to let us know that you've enjoyed it. And if, if you're out there saying, I already knew everything in this episode, well, you should be a guest on a future episode, my friend. So get in touch. And with that, it remains for me to thank Nicoletta Verbeck for joining us and you for listening. I've been your host, Chris Jenkins, and I'll catch you next time.